Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you as well from wherever you happen to be joining us from in the world today. Nice to be back in church after a weekend of weirdness uh, last weekend. Uh, being out of power for a number of days and power poles on the ground and everything else, I can honestly say I've never actually experienced anything like that in a couple of decades of ministry, but thanks for your patience and understanding. Nice to see that things like Facebook work and Instagram work, so that was really nice, but good to be with you again. I want to tell you something that's happening uh, this weekend, right now, actually. On Friday night, yesterday, and today, uh, there's a group of young adults, about 40 young adults from our church that are gathered uh, up at Beacon Bible Camp. And so uh, yesterday, uh, sorry, on Friday night, I went up and uh, got them settled there, uh, did a session with them Saturday morning, and then Duncan Reed and uh, Faith Taha are leading worship. Duncan's not leading worship. Faith's leading worship. Uh, Duncan's doing some teaching. They're having communion together this morning. And I was just so amazed as I got to sit with this group of young adults uh, that are so passionate about experiencing Jesus together and the prayers they're praying and the questions they're asking and the way that they're interacting around the goodness and holiness of God. Even on a weekend like this, when they could be doing lots of other things, they chose to invest their time and their own resources to be together and to seek Christ together. And I was just part of that group, and I thought, Rexdale Alliance Church has an incredible future when leaders like this are getting together to pursue Christ together. So we're going to be praying for, I hope you'll pray for them even today as they drive home at around 2 o'clock. It was interesting. Uh, Friday night, we got in late and everything else like that. And all the food was set out in the kitchen. And one of the young adults, the planning team, said, Oh, by the way, uh, the camp didn't actually provide a cook for us. Uh, so who should cook? And I thought, well, that should be me. So I got up early Saturday morning and we did uh, scrambled eggs, bacon, all these sorts of things. Got it all laid out. There was, at one point, there was like 17 people in the kitchen all trying to assist me. So we had breakfast, immediately followed by a healing service. So that was really good. And they were all really impressed with my ability to um, cook at some degree. Um, wondering how my family survived all these years. But we did our best. It's been absolutely fantastic time. So just be praying for them today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16? into the Old Testament for the next uh, number of weekends, because this weekend we're starting a six-week series about the life of King David as recorded for us in Scripture, a series called After God's Own Heart, A Journey Through the Life of David. I just want to begin by saying a word or two about why we're doing this. And why is it that we're going to devote so much time, I mean, numbers of weeks, to studying just one man's life in the Old Testament? Well, for one thing, and I don't think this is the main thing, but it's an important thing. As I've studied David's life, I just find David to be a remarkable human being. I mean, just think about this for a moment. He was a musician that was so skilled that a king, King Saul, would summon David to play in his presence because David's playing could vanish depression when nothing else worked. David was this formidable warrior that won a legendary battle against a great champion when he wasn't even old enough to shave and puts the enemy on the ground. David had this way of attracting other leaders and soldiers who would give their lives to serve under him. And he subjugated his nation's enemies in a way that Israel had never experienced before and probably hasn't since. David was this fierce competitor. He'd take on a lion, he'd take on a bear, anything, he'd just take them on. But not only was he this competitor, he was also a poet. And he wrote these psalms, these songs that expressed the longing of the human heart for God so deeply that now even in our day, thousands of years later, 
They remain the single most moving and influential devotional literature ever written. David literally wrote a large portion of the most beloved prayer book in all of human history. He was a statesman. A statesman of such wisdom and political skill that Israel achieved its highest level of economic well-being and political stability that he was able to pass on to his son. But it really started under David's reign. And his reign would forever be remembered as the golden age of Israel. And it would exist so powerfully in people's memories that they would refer to the Messiah as the son of David. Because they hoped that whoever the Messiah would be would reclaim the glory days of Israel like it was under David. In many ways, maybe you've never thought of it this way. David is really one of the central characters of the Old Testament. I mean, look at the space that's devoted to him. Abraham gets 14 chapters about him in the Old Testament. Elijah gets 10 chapters. David has 66 chapters in the scriptures devoted to his life alone. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament, more than 60 times in the New Testament. And he is the last name mentioned in Scripture. Revelation 22:16. Jesus says, I am the offspring of David, the morning star. And to this day, the flag that flies over the political entity known as Israel features what? The star of David. It's just a remarkable man. But in the text that we look at this weekend... God says that what's really remarkable about David, what really drew God to David, this incredible guy, was not his external accomplishments. Not at all. It was his heart. It was the internal stuff. And to be very clear, whether you're just being introduced to David for the first time today, or you've known about the story of David your whole life, we know this. David was by no means perfect, was he? I mean, not even close. The Bible is so clear about his faults and his failings. But I'm going to give you a secret. My real reason, our real reason for studying David isn't actually to glorify David and talk about how amazing he is. The reason we're doing this is to see God glorified in us as we have our hearts shaped by God's Spirit over these next few weeks. It's about how God can be glorified in our hearts, in our character, in our lives, yours and mine, over the weeks that are ahead. And I just think David's story is a catalyst that God is going to use in this season of our church to make us more like Jesus. And I think this is going to be a matter of the heart for all of us. Because I think our hearts can change when we engage with God's word and by his spirit, he does a work in us to make us into the kind of people he longs for us to be. Now, 1 Samuel 16 is where we first meet David in scripture. You go back in Israel's history, Israel had been freed from slavery in Egypt. After 430 years of slavery, they're freed. They come into a promised land. And in that time, they didn't have a king. That is a group of people called judges. Judges like Joshua and Gideon and Samson. And the last judge of Israel, which was kind of the spiritual leader, they kind of kept control over things as best they could. It didn't work out so well. These judges would kind of be the spiritual caretakers and, and directors of the nation. And the last judge that Israel had was a man named Samuel. And Samuel's so important to David's story. We had to go back here a little bit. But the people under Samuel, who was a judge, the people of Israel came to a point where they said, you know what? We're looking around, and there's something that all the other nations around us have that we don't have, and we want one. We want a king that will lead us into battle and guide us and be the person that we can look to for our hope, for our glory, for our leadership for power, for all those sorts of things. 
And Samuel, the judge, is devastated by this. He says, you're asking for something that you, don't, that you think you want, but you don't want that. God is your king. Please don't replace God as your spiritual leader with some human being that will just tax you into the ground and take your men off to war. Don't do it. And Samuel goes to God and says, God, this is what your people are wanting. And God says, give them what they ask for. And even though they're asking for something that's against my will for them, I am still going to use it to redeem. And so Samuel says, okay, you get a king. And Samuel anointed a man named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, an impressive man. It says in the scriptures that he stood head and shoulders over all the other people of Israel. He was Israel's giant, which makes a lot more sense why that's important when we get to the story of David and Goliath. Saul was Israel's giant. But Saul became increasingly corrupt, violent, evil, turned his heart against God. And Samuel the judge, who had anointed, that is, brought the oil to say, you are the person of God's choosing for leadership. Samuel eventually has to come and bring the word of the Lord to Saul. And he says to him, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He's saying, Saul, you've lost your heart. You're not pursuing God anymore, and God has chosen somebody else and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. That statement is said back in 1 Samuel 13, and no name is given. He just simply says to Saul, Samuel does, listen, there's somebody else that God has chosen because God's looking at some internal realities, and he's looking for the kind of person to lead his people with heart. We still don't know who it is as you're moving through 1 Samuel We come to 1 Samuel 16, and Samuel is this old, old man by this time. He's close to being finished his time on earth, and God speaks to him one more time. God comes to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 and says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. That place probably sounds a little familiar. It comes up again in the scriptures following. I have chosen one of his sons, one of Jesse's sons, to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse, that's the dad, to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Samuel didn't always show up with the best of news. So they're thinking something's wrong. And they asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself. That is purify yourself. There's a ritual that was done to do that. And come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated, purified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Look at this guy. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Who was head and shoulders above? It was Saul. Don't look at height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Our theme verse for the next six weeks. And Jesus called, Jesse called Abinadab uh, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, 
The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep, Samuel said. Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and brought him in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. We still don't know his name in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon. And here's where his first name ever mentioned in scripture upon David. And Samuel went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. So here's what happens. God tells Samuel, this judge, Samuel, you need to go and anoint, that is, position someone as a new king. And Samuel says, hey, God, uh, we've already got one of those king things, and it's really bad for the health of a prophet to anoint a new king when there's already one that's ruling. And God said, trust me, it's okay. So Samuel goes to this little obscure village called Bethlehem that no one had really even heard of. And you'll notice in the text it says in verse 4 that the elders of the town trembled when Samuel was coming. And Samuel really wasn't known for his small talk. And they wondered, really, who sinned. That's kind of the question going on. Because every time Samuel showed up, he was pointing out where people had rebelled against God. I mean, somebody's in serious trouble. And so they trembled. And Samuel said, take it easy, it's okay. God is bringing a great honor to your town of Bethlehem. And the leader of his people is going to come from your little obscure village of Bethlehem. And so Samuel invites the elders and Jesse's family to this event. This is going to be a big deal. And you might imagine that his arrival would create quite a stir in this little village. And Jesse is so proud. I mean, he can hardly stand it. I mean, now you've got to picture the scene for a moment. And the tension that's built throughout it. Jesse introduces his first son, his heir. So proud of this kid. He's always known this kid was bound for greatness. I mean, class president, quarterback of the football team, outstanding young CEO, all these sorts of things. Kid pulls up in his Ferrari. Hey, Dad, how's it going? Gives him a hug. Walks into a room, just dominates it. Jesse says, look at that commanding presence. This is my son, Eliab, the chosen one. And everybody agrees, totally the chosen one. Except God. God says, no, it's not him. So Samuel passes the word on, and Jesse has son number two, Abinadab. Abinadab's great. Great guy. But he's not the man either. And son number three, Shammah. He comes walking in. It's not him either. He goes through all of these sons. And they don't all get named in the scriptures, but they all, one by one, are paraded before Samuel. And nobody is the person that God has in mind. And Samuel's wondering by this time, God, why in the world did you call me out to the middle of nowhere to just reject seven people publicly? What's that about? So Samuel says to Jesse, great question. Are these the only sons you have? Seems like kind of an odd question, doesn't it? You think that Jesse would know how many kids he has? I mean, are these the only sons you have? And Jesse says almost as an afterthought, oh, yeah, they're still the youngest. What's his name out there in the field? There's him. We need to understand right at this moment, when Jesse uses the term youngest, he wasn't just referring to his last born. He's also referring to the one in the family who was lowest in rank. There's a big difference in that day to the whole birth. There's a big, huge significance to the whole birth order thing. Now, there's some of that that shows up in our day. Now, how many of you, you're going to have to show, show of hands on this one. How many of you in the room today 
are not the firstborn in your family. You're middle or youngest. Oh, good. I resonate with you. My heart goes out to you. I'm the youngest in my family. And you've ever noticed that the firstborn always, always, always has certain unfair advantages over the other kids in the family? I'm speaking as a youngest child now. Like the photo album. So when you ever noticed this? The oldest has like every day of their life recorded in photo and video. And the youngest basically has a picture of their birth and then a blurry picture at graduation. And it's like, we're not sure what happened in between, but they were around. I grew up as the youngest in my family. I know this pain. I get it. Unfair advantages to the oldest. Well, Jesse says they're still the youngest, but he's kind of out in the field with the sheep. And Samuel says, go send for him. We're going to wait. Imagine what that was like. That had to take considerable time. I mean, which field? Where? In what part of the wilderness to track this kid down out with the sheep? So Samuel says, you all don't sit down until he comes. So they're all just, think about this. They're all just standing there. Seven sons, like the first runner-up in a bad pageant. Just standing around waiting for the youngest to come. Well, they finally get David. They bring him in front of Samuel, right out of the field. Right into the ceremony. God sees David and says, that one. Him. That's who I've chosen to be king. Now there's a theme going on here. Something that started even before the story of David. It's a theme that runs through the whole Old Testament. I want to just say a word about it. Because it has something to do about the reversal of birth order. Because again, in those days, birth order was almost everything. Such a big deal. You think about the thread that's followed in the Old Testament of the people of God. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you can just start reading places like Genesis and Exodus. Read through Judges, and there's something that you'll find. You'll, you'll be introduced to people like someone named Ishmael, who's the firstborn, but God ends up choosing Isaac, the younger. Esau comes first, but the line has to go through Jacob. Ten brothers are born first, but God chooses Joseph. Seven other brothers born first, but David, the youngest, the lowest in rank, becomes king. Now, what is God saying? Is God saying that firstborn kids are all spoiled and he likes younger kids better? Yes, I think that's exactly what he's saying. <laughs> Not really. See, in those days, everything, everything went to the firstborn. All rights, all property, all privileges. And that's the way power structures went. That's how it was supposed to go. And God is saying, in my economy, how my kingdom works, I actually break into ordinary cultural practices of human life and I do things different. I do things brand new. And he's saying throughout the scripture, God is he's saying old limitations, old boundaries, and about who counts and who doesn't count. They don't apply anymore. Not in God's kingdom. God is always about doing something new and upsetting the power structures of humanity that put us in charge and make us secure in what we can establish. And God is not subservient to any human system or power, is he? God is at work and his kingdom is going to shake things up. God's kingdom is always a shaking kind of kingdom. A shaking of human structures. And God summarizes this in verse 7 when he says to Samuel, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I go inside, not outside. And it's so important that we understand this rightly and don't distort this verse. So let me say first of all what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that gifts or talents or strengths don't matter to God. You know, sometimes Christians talk as if gifts and strength and talents and ability are bad things. As if God just prefers people that have no talent at all. What 1 Samuel 16, 7 points out 
is not that gifts, talents, or strengths are bad things or that God can't use those things. What it's pointing out is that the human race, you and I, we inevitably tend to observe and obsess over external appearance. That's what we obsess over. We tend to think that charm, attractiveness, ability that leads to outward accomplishment, that's the stuff that matters. So if I have those things in obvious, invisible ways, then I'm blessed. Right? That's what the world tells us. And if I don't have those in obvious, visible ways, then I'm insignificant. I don't matter. And we forget about the heart. I mean, isn't that how our world works? There are some cultures in the world that are a little bit more forward in caste systems of who's up and who's down and who's in between, right? But I say it's a condition of the human heart. We're always wanting to rank each other to know where we fit. And yeah, I know there's exceptional people above me, but I got to really know who's below me so that I know where I fit. That's how it works in the world. You bring your gifts, your talent, your experience, your education, your pedigree, whatever else it is, and that's what we lay on the table and say, my effectiveness, my value in life is all about what's out here, what people can see. And God says, I actually work the exact opposite way. While everyone else is forgetting about the heart, it is God's primary concern. And what God says over and over, what God is saying to some of us right now, and what he will say throughout this series, is that in the kingdom of God, everybody matters. In God's kingdom, everybody has something to offer. In God's kingdom, everybody's contribution matters, the lastborn as well as the firstborn. In God's kingdom, race and skin color, culture, language, intelligence, gender, all the things the world uses to determine effectiveness is not what God prioritizes. He's after the heart. And God said to Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, where there's a resonance of character between this man and God's heart. And that's what he found in David. So now the question is, what is it about David's heart that makes it a heart after God's own heart? Where there's this sympathetic resonance between the heart of God and the heart of David. With just a few moments remaining in this message, I want to get us, have us know David a little bit as we come to the communion table. I just want to talk about a few things that I believe made David great-hearted in God's sight. And I really think that these are the building blocks that God is going to use over these next few weeks to make us into the kind of people, heart-oriented people, that he's longing for us to be. That we become, we take all of us, every single one of us here and online, take steps of faith in these next few weeks that start to shape us and form us into people after God's own heart, where our hearts are in sympathetic resonance with the very heart and values of God himself. So let me give you a few things that I think made David's heart great. And I'm going to ask you to do just a little heart check today to do some examination of the interior. We spend so much time on exterior stuff. In these weeks, we're working on the heart. So let's start with a heart check. By looking at some things that characterize David. First one is this. And I believe you'll get to see this as you get to know David. That David's heart was characterized by a sense of wild abandon. Wild abandon. That scares some of you, but just let me explain it. His heart was characterized by a sense of being fully sold out and abandoned to God. Wild abandon. This is a common line from one of the Psalms associated with David. In Psalm 9-1, David says, I'll praise you, Lord, with all of my heart. It's about full-heartedness. 
That occurs again in Psalm 86 and Psalm 111. It's this picture that David had this unguarded passion and heart. He wasn't calculating and cautious with his heart. He was generous and free. Where do we see that? Well, one of the stories of David is, is told that the ark, which was the representation of God's presence with the people, was being brought to Jerusalem. And it was a moment that symbolized and expressed the fact that God was uniquely present and reigning with his people. And David, the king of the country, started dancing and leaping before the Lord with all his might. Some of you know that story. As the ark was coming in, David just can't hold back. He just explodes in praise. And I just wonder, when was the last time that you were so full of gratitude to God that you just jumped up and down? You just had to express with some measure of wild abandon, whatever wild abandon looks like for you, a heart that is on fire with the goodness of God. I'm not saying it has to look exactly like David. It's not him we're emulating. I'm simply asking the question, when was the last time that you were just overwhelmed and out of words as you experienced the love and goodness of God? And you couldn't be calculating with God. And you couldn't just be predictable with God, but he just swept you up in his goodness and love. When's the last time that happened? Well, David was so passionate about God that he had this wildly abandoned heart. He was jumping up and down, giving all to the God that he adored so deeply. Another time, David was commanded to build an altar at a threshing floor of a man named Aruna. And this man saw David and his men come and he said to them, take my threshing floor. Now, threshing floors is where the income for the family was made. And so this man is saying, I want you to take my livelihood. And you know what? Take my oxen for a sacrifice and the wood for fuel. It's all my gift. And in this moment, David's heart is just seized with gratitude to God. And he says to Aruna, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now again, from a cost-benefit standpoint, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, there's a guy giving you his livelihood as a free gift. You don't have to pay anything for it. We hear all about impulse buying in our day. When's the last time you were compelled by impulse giving? Were you just overwhelmed with God's generosity to you that you pour it back to him? David was an impulse giver. I want to have a heart like that. I don't want to go to my grave with a heart that's cold and calculating and protected and safe and hard. I don't, and I don't think you do either. I want to have a heart like that and to be part of a community of hearts like that, a community of passionate hearts so devoted to God that we just get swept up in His love and His power and His goodness together. And my prayer is that over the next few weeks, that some, for some of you, your expression in worship and how we gather here, some of the shackles are going to come off because God's going to do something in your heart that you have to express with passion, that you may have never expressed it like that before in your life. And some of you are going to be moved to expressions of gratitude or to tears of joy or conviction like you never have before. And God's just going to allow it to well up in you. My prayer over the last couple of weeks is that some of us are going to be moved to give to God with a sense of abandon and sacrifice. With the kind of generosity that marked a guy like David's life. For some of us, I think wild abandon in the next few weeks are going to be steps of courageous faith. That you show courage in a relationship or a ministry or step into an act of service that you never knew you could. But you're being so moved along by God's spirit and so absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude to him that you're willing just to be responsive to him, whatever he asks you to do. And you find out, I didn't know this stuff was in me, but out it comes. 
My prayer is that we develop hearts that are just wildly abandoned to God in this season. To be the people, free to be the people God has called us to be. But there's another thing about David's heart. David's heart was also characterized by deep reflection. Not just by wild abandon, but by deep reflection. A typical comment from David, this is also one of the Psalms attributed to him, Psalm 139. At the end of it, when it says, search me, God, and know my heart. It's a rare combination when you think about these first two traits, isn't it? Passionate action on the one hand, deep reflection on the other. That was David, wildly abandoned, yet deeply reflective. I'll tell you what I think. I think David's heart was formed in unique ways in all the time he spent alone with God in the quiet place. I think it's the only explanation for a soul that was so deep that it could pen words like, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. You know, David spent so much of his life waiting. We know this from the story. When he was a kid, he was just tending sheep. And then there's this amazing day when Samuel, the judge, comes and anoints him to be king. And I'll think about this. Imagine the next day. Because, you know, David doesn't just march into Jerusalem and sit on the throne and start ruling. I mean, Saul is still there as king. And now Samuel's left and gone to Ramah. What does David do the next day? After being anointed king of the nation. Back to the field. Back to the sheep. Just imagine this happening to you. You've just been anointed king. Greatest promotion in all of human history. And you have nobody to tell it to except the sheep. Hey, sheep, I'm the king. And they don't care. They just keep grazing away. Not much excitement there. In all those years, he was leading a flock of sheep through the wilderness. They were not wasted years. He was learning to be alone with God and grow deep in his soul. There were all the years he ended up having to hide from Saul. Living in caves, running from one spot to the next. Those were not wasted years. He was growing deep with God in the solitude and quiet. Because I believe in those seasons, God was shaping a great heart and a deep heart. And God wants to do that for you and me if we'll give him a chance. I was thinking yesterday. You ever get tired of noise? You ever get tired of the noise factor of the world we live in? It dawned on me yesterday, I was driving back from Beacon Bible Camp from the Young Adults Retreat I mentioned. First thing I usually do when I get into the vehicle, I turn it on. First thing, maybe you do it to music, podcast, something, right? And I had this prompt, knowing what I was going to be talking about this weekend. I sensed a prompting from the Spirit. Wade, would you just sit quiet with me? And I'm like, yeah, God, that's like two and a half hours. That's a long time. You know, maybe at Barry I can turn on the music or something. Uh, but I decided to do it and just turned off the music, turned off the noise, and sat with Jesus on a little road trip. And I was agitated and a little upset at first. I had things I wanted to be processing. But there was this quietness of soul that came over me as I drove. Just a beautiful moment, just no noise, just kind of unplanned in the vehicle, just shut off the noise. You ever get tired of the noise? You know, I think the primary reason for the lack of depth in our culture is the sheer volume of noise and information that we get bombarded with. When do you ever reflect? One of my favorite writers, this is what Henry Nouwen writes. He says this, Solitude. Solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy that their life itself becomes a ministry. That's what happens in the quiet place. 
I want to have a heart that goes deep with God in quiet places. David had a heart that was characterized by wild abandon. I want a heart like that. He had a heart that was characterized by deep reflection. Man, I'd love a heart like that. But I think the other thing that cries out about David's heart, and maybe what I want most of all is this, that David's heart was characterized right down to the core by irrational love. Irrational love. You think of the people in David's life, some of who we're going to learn about in the weeks to come. Take Saul, once a promising young king himself, and then just increasingly corrupt and jealous of David. And here's Saul, who's tormented by pathological jealousy and several times tries to kill David. What's amazing is this, that through it all, you just see this again, David loved Saul. And there are others we're going to meet, like Jonathan and Mephibosheth or Absalom. And whether a friend, a family member, or an enemy, when David loved you, you stayed loved because there's tremendous grace and heart, grace and love in a heart like that. And I want to love like that. You know, most notably, I think that this is, I think that what we see in David's life is like a window, just a small window into the heart of God Himself. You know, as David grew in his love and devotion for God, it was God's heart that started to be seen in David's life. I mean, you think about those characteristics. It's not just really about David. They're kind of a reflection of God. You see, God is not tameable, is he? God's not cold or small. It's like he creates with wild abandon and creativity. And yet our God is never anxious or worried or afraid. He's the God of stillness. He's a God of peace. He's a God that is steadfast. And what we see through David's life and all through the scriptures, right up to the cross, is that God is a God of irrational love who loves you because it's his nature to do so. And he loves you relentlessly. And I think it's these things that we've just talked about that are going to shape our hearts in the weeks to come. Would you pray with me? I just want to take a moment for us to consider... what it is the Spirit is saying to us as we begin this series. And I think I want to pose the question this way, just in a, an attitude of prayer, whether here in the room or online. The question is this, which one of those three things do you sense the Spirit prompting you to pay attention to? Which one of those three attributes of the heart do you sense that God might be doing something you, calling you, inviting you into? I wonder for some of us, the whole idea of wild abandon, about giving ourselves freely to God, is exactly where he wants to take you. And you know that you've been holding back, you've been playing it cautious with God, because maybe you don't believe he's good, or that he's trustworthy, or maybe just the stuff of life has brought a coldness to your heart, a calculated nature to your heart. And I'm wondering if your surrender today would be this, God, I want to live with a wild abandon for you. I want to be sold out toward you and your purposes. God, would you take me there? Just form that into a prayer and ask God to start doing that in your heart. I wonder for others of us, what God's inviting us into is a season of deep reflection. It's time to get quiet with Him. Maybe what He's saying to you is your life is so full of so much noise. You're bombarded constantly. You wake up with noise. You move through your day with noise. Your evenings are full of noise. You even sleep with sound machines on. 
It's time to get quiet. And I just wonder if in the next six or seven weeks, if God's going to prompt you in the response of the responsiveness He's calling you to is into a moment, into a season of quiet solitude. To just get quiet with Him and not be afraid of the thoughts that are going to come to your heart and mind, but allow Him to meet you there and heal you of the things we're trying to avoid by just keeping things noisy. You just express your desire to to get quiet with him. Allow him to shape you in that. And I wonder for others, how how many of us, this is going to be a season of being formed and shaped and inspired by irrational love. That as we are receivers of the kind of love that is unconditional, that God starts to say, as has been given to you, so give to others. And maybe there's people in our relational world who we've decided that love's not for them. We can't go there. God's saying to receive this irrational love that doesn't calculate it out, but just gives it that he wants for you. Maybe you need to experience it, that God's not actually holding back on you. He's not resisting you. He is loving you like a river of mercy and goodness. But we put up the wall. We put up the dam and say, God, not now. Maybe now is the season to say, God, I'm willing to receive a love I can't even describe so that I can live out of that love as a very ministry to those around me. What commitment do you need to make in your heart today as we come to the table? Do what David did. Search my heart, God. Know me. See if there's any offensive way. I want to get it out. I want to live with an irrational love. I bless each one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to the table. A table that in its very essence is a picture of being loved beautifully, unconditionally, and irrationally. God gave his all for you and me. He held back nothing to set us free from the power of sin. And it's him we remember when we come to the table. A God who creates with wild abandon, a God takes us to the quiet place and a God who loves us perfectly. And in that spirit we take. In that spirit we receive the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name. Amen. But now go with this blessing that the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be yours as he shapes your heart into the likeness of Christ himself to glorify him and be a blessing in this world to all people. God bless you as you go. Have a great Mother's Day.